0: Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex Montanto, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a historical consultant to film and television. And Hannah, we're very excited today to have an applicant for the History Film Club we both know well, who is a wonderful historian, author and broadcaster, professor of history, in fact, at the University of Roehampton. And we've learned that she, in fact, used to teach uh, ruckshaki at Oxford University, which is more commonly known as belly dancing. I assume this wasn't part of the official Oxford University course, but, you know, who knows? We like to be interdisciplinary here at History Film Club. Please welcome Susanna Lipscomb. Hello. Lovely to see you both, or not actually see you, hear you both. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to see you. And Susie, today we were going to talk about a subject close to your heart, which is Tudors on film and TV, a perennially popular subject, starting, of course, with the great Henry VIII, um, such a staple of popular culture. Now, obviously, you've got so much academic knowledge about Henry, but I sort of wanted to start by asking you where you sort of first encountered him in film and TV.
1: Oh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure which was the first I saw. One of the ones that made a particular
0: impression on on lots of
1: people was Keith Michelle's appearance. This came out in the 70s, so I didn't. Funnily enough, I'm not that old. I didn't see it when it first came out, <laughs> but I did. I did see it repeated on TV at a later stage. And in about 2003, the one came, the film came out with Ray Winstone playing Henry VIII, and I was at an impressionable age at that point in time. You know, <laughs> my late twenties or something. I don't know. Anyway, I <laughs> and I I remember thinking that was quite an interesting depiction of Henry. In terms of it, so far from what's expected, a lot of his depictions on film have shaped our idea of him, and perhaps none more famously than Charles Lawton throwing chicken legs over his shoulder. Like we have this idea of Henry as <laughs> as someone who is born of his cinematic depictions, and some of that's tied up with historical sources, but a lot of it also has been conjured up in in the century or so of film that we've had.
2: Well, I think a lot of the films kind of replicate that classic portrait image of Henry, don't they, with his legs apart and his big robust body staring straight out at the canvas at you. And I think that's what we see a lot of the time on film. But then the one that really moved away from that was the Tudors TV series, which sexed up the young Henry, didn't it, and suddenly revealed him to be this handsome, dashing um, young man that we could all Fall in love with in a slightly different way. Both
1: those things are true, historically speaking. Charles Lawton, which was in 1933, the first film in English about Henry VIII, kind of fixed that idea of the portrait, the full-length, I the full front, I was going to say, yeah. portrait <laughs> of Henry VIII um, into cinematic consciousness. And most films, as you say, have sort of touched on that since. And The Tudors was thought to be very different at the time when you've got Jonathan Rhys-Myers playing Henry VIII and also, you know, true to history, playing him as this gorgeous young man. The only problem with that, of course, is that he, he didn't get any bigger. So we, we went through the <laughs> decades with him and he's still both young and skinny. Um, and, and so becoming quite far from Henry VIII in his uh, sort of generous obesity towards the end of his life.
0: You know, he did start out, as as many of us do, as quite an attractive young person and gradually became more and more like Charles Alton. Um, in the private life, of Henry VIII, as you as you mentioned, 1933 film that really sort of fixed that image. And I mean, obviously, it's based on Holbein's portraits visually and all of this. But at the same time, the I think particularly you mentioned the chicken leg eating sort of really has. I literally just looked this film up, and the first thing that comes up, the first video, is chicken eating scene, um, which I'm pretty sure wasn't in Holbein's portraits. We now have him in our minds constantly gnawing on some kind of bird bone. <laughs> In his films and this, but it does fix this image of this sort of gluttonous man. I mean on the posters, of course he's also um, seen sort of ravishing a woman and his appetites seem to be pretty unquenchable on all fronts and that's perhaps something that even the Tudors did pick up in a slightly different way.
1: That's exactly it. So they were trying to make it look as if it was historical. And at the time, they were massively praised when it first came out for having done that. And that scene with him sitting eating the chicken legs, hes sat in a recreation of Hampton Court's Great Hall with the entrance to the Great Watching Chamber behind him. And so it is made to look as if it—you know they put him in his original space. The link there you've made, uh, as ever, is astute because it's very much portraying him as this man of great appetites. So it's equating the joy of sex with the pleasure of food. And food is used throughout, given this is made in the 1930s, as a substitute or a euphemism for sex, so they can't have any sex on screen. <laughs> so we see instead each wife kind of characterised as a court. In fact, that literally happens in the, there were these kitchen scenes where members of his household sympathise with this this poor man, this is, which is extraordinary. Is how he's portrayed as this very sympathetic sense of him, uh, and how his subjects are completely on his side. And so there's lots and lots of references about food which are about you know for Henry loses a wife and then he gorges himself on food you know so things like that and what's interesting about it is both quite innocent in one sense and also I think it Lays the groundwork for what becomes the carry-on films because there's loads of innuendo. <laughs> there's loads of women, <laughs> sort of women, cooing over him. Oh, what luck to be, to to you know, to be with the king. And so the sort of he's supposed to be eminently desirable, and the women, you know, orgasm when they see him. You know, so it's like it's, <laughs> which seems a bit improbable when you see him now. But there we go. Um, that's what's going on in that film.
0: It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? And I think it's very interesting what you said there about how he is portrayed as very sympathetic. I mean, he's very much a kind of big, lovable, generous, heroic kind of Henry. And, you know, now surely we kind of see somebody who divorced and murdered his way through that number of wives (laughs) in a somewhat different light. I mean, you know, do you think this is something that has kind of changed over the last nearly a century since that film was made?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's changed dramatically. And each time he is portrayed on film, it is talking to the sexual politics of the day in which it's made. So Henry in... Um, the private life of Henry VIII of the Charles Lauton Lawton performances. Um, he is the victim of manipulative women, um, <laughs> and 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 actually the two wives who don't fit the paradigm: Catherine of Aragon, uh, who's dispatched within a sort of in a sort of ass and a caption at the beginning, and Jane Seymour, uh, who's dealt with very quickly. Uh, you know, are off then not barely not seen on camera. So otherwise we've got. Uh, Anne Boleyn, and then we've got Anne of Cleves and and Catherine Howard and others who are are supposed to be sort of attacking him. Um, Actually, another interesting thing is that they make Catherine Howard his sort of main love story, whereas in uh, films since that's often been Anne Boleyn. But the point of it, I suppose, is that there was something going on about creating sympathy for him. It, It had a kind of purpose politically in the 1930s you think about the fact that there's a new new mass electorate particularly young women who are now able to vote and also this is the context of actually of the 1927 act for calling for films to be used to kind of promote a, a kind of image of the superiority of british culture i suppose in some ways you've got what's going on there a call to politicize young women in a way that makes them be proud to be British and so they have to fall in love with this Henry VIII, which is quite a big difference from, say, Anne of the Thousand Days, which actually is a real shocker if you go back and watch it now. The contrast Mm. between now and thinking about the sexual politics of the late 60s is quite something. Or the one I mentioned earlier, the 2003 one um, with Ray Winston, where you've got sort of quite brutal rape scenes, entirely invented as far as I can tell, um, and things like that. So... We definitely see that with the relationship, but how we see, portray the relationship between Henry and his wives very much depends on where we are in history.
2: And it's really interesting, actually, that you said that about the kind of context for the private lives of Henry VIII, because when I saw it recently, when I was thinking about this podcast with you, Susanna, um, I was really struck that the women are sort of centre of the screen a lot, although... Their characters are not written in the way that we might write women's history now. And they're sort of seen as flirtatious and manipulative and all of those things. Visually, they are very striking in the scene that there's these groups of women moving across all the time, across the kind of set pieces. And you don't get quite so many um, scenes of the kind of diplomatic bits of state. And it is all about this kind of women's life at court that's how I was sort of watching it with these moments where they intersect with the states where I can't. Well, who was it who tried to interrupt um, the business of state? And she's because she needs to pick her hat for her wedding or something silly like that. Um, but it, it, as a film, it does privilege, I think, women's position at the court. Um, so it's interesting to think about that in the context of those acts of parliament and trying to lure the female voter. I had not considered that in advance <laughs> of um, either watching it or talking about it with you. So I'm intrigued by that. And I want to go back and look at other 1930s films to see if others are doing something similar or not. And I think it it's a deliberate decision.
1: You can see in the title, The Private Life of Henry VIII, it means that they don't have to deal with politics or religion. It's all outside the scope of their film, you know, so they can <laughs> deal with the intimacy and the personal relationships, and they can be kind of irreverent and burlesque and very funny, and have, as you say, there's quite powerful women. They're not as we would write them, but they are witty and they are um, opinionated and and many other things that you do see in film at the time, if you. Uh, Think about some of the products of, of film coming out of the in the at that period. So women aren't aren't relegated, that's for sure.
2: It, it makes me think we're constantly reinventing the wheel with films now, history films, because we like to say with recent releases, oh, this is about going behind closed doors. This is not about the kind of high history or high politics. This is about someone's private life. This is about reconstructing their emotional self. But actually, all films have been doing that for quite a long time. Particularly when you take these big historical stories
0: yeah and i think i mean the thing is film and this is so relevant when it comes to the tudors i think because film is a very intimate medium you know ultimately unlike you know theater you are often very very up close with these characters um you know you really can go to into super close-up and have these kind of very intimate scenes which you know some types of theater can Can broach, but I think on film you really are sort of in the moment. Um, And I think a lot of early films absolutely exploited that. And with the Tudors, is there something, Susie, just in how incredibly personal Tudor politics and events were, you know, that actually the personality of the king or later queen did matter enormously. And these personal, intimate relationships were hugely consequential um, on a global level.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, that's true historically, certainly, uh, in that, you know, the court is defined as as 12 miles around wherever the monarch is and the the business of court um, the politics of court happens both in the council and of course it's happening at parliament and in the chamber it's happening in uh, the personal relationships of the king and then the queen with people and that's you know fascinating when we get to say Elizabeth because in the chamber you've only got women Um, so it's interesting to think about how power is handled and One of the things about Elizabeth's court, for example, is I think historians are agreed now that, you know, basically to be at court was to, if you're a man particularly, was to pretend to be in love with the Queen. Um, That was how you advanced yourself. And so it's all around the performative nature of personal relationships, at least. And so we see that reflected in something like Shekhar Kapoor's Elizabeth, where I mean there's some very interesting things going on there in terms of the the story it's telling about religion and the contrast it makes between Mary and Elizabeth but also it shows particularly Elizabeth seeming to reject her personal love for Robert Dudley in order to become queen but obviously actually what it's doing above all is focusing on that personal relationship.
2: I I loved that film. That film had a big made a big impression on me and I have to say that's probably where I get Almost all and any of my knowledge of the period from, <laughs> so um, it's not completely historically accurate, Susie. You're going to have to set me straight, but I remember being very moved by that film, and you know, seeing Kate Blanchett in that role. That was probably the first time I'd seen her on screen. I mean, she's such a big star now. I don't know what she'd been doing before that, but um, but I remember that as being this kind of, you know, a kind of moment of seeing her and just being so wowed by her as an actress, and also the story and this sort of uh, emergence of queen elizabeth into the stereotype that we're familiar with and maybe that's what's so fascinating about both henry and elizabeth is we we have an image of the stereotype and then the films juxtapose them, don't they? because we have the the virile henry and then the the virgin queen elizabeth and then they're very enigmatic kind of portraiture and then the films humanize them in some way and i think i found that really moving with elizabeth um although i doubted the story about the spanish armada being completely shifted by the winds which i seem to think is what it was said in the film that they just got blown away but i don't know if that's true or not Do you have to but funnily enough me? that's actually
1: true pretty much is yeah it's <laughs> <a blow>? <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's the um actually it was the really really terrible weather who would have thought uh, around britain um and but but also there was a tropical Hurricane at a, a latitude that wasn't repeated until 1961 that helped uh, disperse the um, Spanish Armada. So that bit actually is quite that, true. That bit's true. But it, I love it too. I, yeah. Um, it's always Fantastic. the bits that you don't expect to be true. that oh. the. Um, I think that film's very powerful and it, it's um, so extraordinary in terms of its depiction. I think it captures the sense of threat against Elizabeth. I mean, basically what it does is it truncates, as many historical films do, um, time. So it puts uh, things that happened over, say, a 25-year period into about five years or so. Um, so many of them did happen, but just not quite such quick succession. And then there are things in it that didn't happen, <laughs> like Robert Dudley getting accused of treason. Um, uh, but it's it created that sense of fear and uh, the peril that was present, I think, at the Tudor courts quite a lot of the time. The other thing I'd say about it is that it did something very powerful in storytelling terms in that it opens with those, uh, you probably might remember the heretics burning and two of them indeed did burn Latimer and Ridley and then there's this completely made up female heretic. Women did burn as heretics under Mary but not with them Um, but she has a shaved head and that of course is prefiguring what we get at the end of the film where we've got Elizabeth who, you know, shaves her head, puts on the wig and has become a virgin (laughs) as she says, you know,
0: for England. Oh, yeah, but everyone makes some stuff up. The thing that always gets people is um, that effectively, if you write it as a film TV, then you just really, really want to make Elizabeth meet Mary, Queen of Scots, and have a scene with them together. Um, and films always do it. But, of course, in real life, that did not happen famously. Just letters, isn't it?
1: Yeah, then letter writing on screen is rather dull, isn't it? So, so boring. <laughs> in you know, the you've
0: end. You've just got to get them in a room. <laughs> yeah, they've <laughs> got to have a conversation. Out, you
2: know. Yeah, Well, I I believed all of the film, apart from the Spanish Armada bit, which turns out to have been true. And then also there's a scene, I think quite early on, where Elizabeth is dancing outside, sort of practising some court uh, Mm -hmm. minuet or dance. I don't know what what they danced at that court. And I also didn't believe that. And and that actually seeded in me a great dislike of any historical films doing any sort of dance practice outside, which happens a lot. I don't understand why we (laughs) need to do this in history film. Why we think people dance around outside, but it, it was that that film as well that also sort of put me off that kind of scene. But everything else, I believed completely. So
1: <laughs> that scene, that scene was. Uh, so they were dancing a galliard, which was a very sexy dance. Uh, <laughs> I mean, without getting into the details, of a man needed to pick a woman up in a relatively intimate way. So it was actually quite a sexy dance. But the reason they did it is to contrast dark old Mary, who is portrayed. Pretty much on a black screen in what appears to be a cathedral, (laughs) so sort of medieval architecture. Um, And, you know, we see the um, dwarf at her court, and she's supposed to be frigid, and, you know, you're supposed to create this sense of the darkness and the fragility and the unnaturalness of her court. Contrast, too, the screen flashes bright white twice, and then you've got Elizabeth dancing freely outside with her hair. (laughs) Like a flower. Yeah. And in pastel colours and, you know, she's she's dancing with men and she's just so natural and into men and not frigid at all, you know.
0: <laughs> well, it's actually, it's funny, the lighting I think is quite crucial as well. It's something you really notice if you go back and look at older Tudor films um, is that everything's very brightly lit. Um, I noticed it recently re-watching Elizabeth R that, of course, all the interiors are, you know, bright, which they, of course, wouldn't have been at all because nobody had any electric lights, Um So it makes nary a difference at all, whether you light a candle or not. Um, And recently, I think there's been more of a trend for, yes, everything in much more sort of authenticity in terms of darkness inside. And, you know, I know that uh, um, Hannah is a massive fan of muddy hems on dresses. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, this sense of something a bit less sort of scrubbed clean and a bit more sort of, well, I suppose what filmmakers think is authentic, whether or not historians think that's authentic.
1: Yes, I mean, for Wolf Hall, famously, they used candlelight and they did a lot of scenes by windows and things in order to create uh, the light circumstances of the 16th century. Um, and I like that, but I do think, I mean, I like it a lot, but <laughs> but I think that it doesn't necessarily read for the modern audience as it would have done for somebody obviously they couldn't watch tv in the 16th century but but bear with me <laughs> um, you know for somebody if they saw it then because um I think you know we think of romance when we think of candlelit things you know and uh, rather than thinking necessarily possibly of menace or just of or everyday life or of it being something mundane and so I think sometimes the associations are not quite what the filmmaker intends uh, but lipstick lipstick in a 16th century film might be one of my <laughs> I bet noirs. <laughs> you know, like I'm, like I'm down with you doing some minimal makeup that's supposed to look like she's not wearing makeup. I get that. But <laughs> when we get to lipstick, I, I have a problem.
2: Well, as we've got to historical details, I did want to ask you about codpieces, I have to say, because when I was watching the Charles Lawton, Henry VIII, there are no codpieces in that film, I don't think. Uh, but obviously they become much more significant in later adaptations. Um, so what should the codpiece be? like in a film Susie so
1: that's got to be I, I hadn't noticed that that's actually got to be about not offending people In mm. um it might have even been against some censorship code to walk for men appear to walk around with an erect penis um so the it's basically right. why
2: do our podcasts always end up talking about erections we've we've been, we've been here before with, with Jane Austen just filthy absolutely
0: filthy <laughs> me <laughs> speak for yourself. I introduced the codpiece. sorry, it was me. I introduced
2: the codpiece. Well,
0: it no, as, as a point of information, I mean, uh, the it, it's supposedly the case that actually in the Tudors they had to reduce the size of cod pieces for the American audience because, yes, again, they were they were a little bit too, even even modern times, they're a bit uh, bit shocking, quite risque.
1: Well, they are eye-catching. They were supposed to be.
0: Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, the, and Henry VIII
1: wore a particularly... Inflated codpiece. Uh, we can see this in his depictions. So codpieces are around. Basically, here's the history. They're around for about sixty years. They start as a sort of flap uh, between the two parts of the trousers in order to enable urination. Um, and but they become gradually more padded and more elaborate and more decorated. Um, and they go out of fashion in the late sixteenth century. Which, uh, to me, you know, it's to do with the the, the gowns, the outer layer of a man's clothing, uh, getting shorter. And the power becomes female and then fashions change. I mean, I one thing I'm fascinated by is the way that men's fashion becomes like these sort of onion breeches, which look like hips and piece called doublet, which looks like a pregnant belly or it's a beer belly, you know. Um, but the <laughs> shape of men's fashion becomes much more feminine. And so something as overt... About male power, as <laughs> this, you know, it's basically an erect penis. A man is walking around with a representation of erect penis on him all, all times. It Ooh, obviously is not jewel, going to fly. And... Yes, and jeweled, yeah. yes. I mean, you know, uh, bedazzling um, in various ways. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, you know, some there's some discussion about whether they came about to uh, give comfort to uh, people who were suffering from syphilis, um, because that's where the disease started. But I think it becomes a fashion item and it is a bit shocking even now. I mean, you look at it, it's like it's going to draw the draw the eye, you know. I was going to say draw the gaze, but that could have more than one
2: meaning. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not modest attire, no. I mean, you know, quite the opposite. So it's just that no film has yet properly represented the codpiece in all of its glory. So we wait, we wait for that in the next adaptation or something. <laughs> Come on, filmmakers. Yeah. Give us cod pieces. This, this is what is the we challenge. rise to the challenge. <laughs> no. oh, that it. That's it. <laughs> okay, we should bring this back to films, I think, kind of fairly, <laughs> fairly swiftly. <laughs> so, Susanna, one of the things we ask our members at History Film Club is to nominate uh, something for the club library, a film or television series that they really love. Would yours be one of these Henry or Elizabeth epics? No, actually. I'm split here. Can I nominate two
1: or would you rather yeah, just one? We,
2: oh, well, we'll give it we a try two? and we'll, we'll have yeah. a think about it.
1: Okay. So the first one I would want to nominate is The Return of Martin Guerre, or La Retour de Martin Guerre. So it's a French film with Gérard Depardieu playing Martin Guerre and it came out in the 80s and one of the writers was the historian, the great historian, Natalie Zeman Davis, who had done much of the historical research on which it's based. So the story, for those who don't know, is of a man who goes off in 1549 to war, to wars um, elsewhere in France and um, comes back to his little village of Artigat in, um, eight years later and looks the same, although war has changed him a little bit, but he has changed his character dramatically. So he, he had been quite an unpleasant person and he comes back and he's jolly. And he is a much better lover (laughs) and um, a friend and everyone likes him and and everything's going well. Until uh, a few years later, somebody turns up and says, this isn't Martin Guerre at all. This is a man called Arnold Dutol and he is an imposter and a court case is brought against him because there's some dispute about property. And so this is why we have all of this in the historical records. And so a film was made of this. And in fact, you might know it from a later, it was adapted for the American audience, put in the Civil War as Summersby, And it's a brilliant story. And the reason I love um, the French original so much is that it recreates 16th century French life, ordinary life, not the life of The court or the, you know, of aristocrats, but the life of most people brilliantly. It does it so, so well. And if I ever want to send my students to a film that will plunge them back into the 16th century, that is the one I tell them to go and see.
2: Well, that would definitely get my vote for the library because also Natalie Zeman Davis writes so beautifully about history and film and her work with that film that, you know, she's one of the historians who I draw on quite often. So it's almost be like having Natalie Zeman Davis in the club as well so it would get my vote but what would be your second choice
1: so the second choice um and I've got you in mind a little bit here uh, Alex is um would be Deeper Mehta's Earth um which is based on a novel um by Bapsi Sidwell which was called Cracking India or Ice Candyman mm. um and it's about the partition of India so it's based in uh, it's in 1947 it's set in Lahore um and it is about it's seen from the perspective of a child who's a, a Parsi child um and uh, seen about her relationship to her Aya, um who is a Hindu woman who um is in love with um a Muslim man, and indeed there is um uh, uh, um and there's also a um she you know, she has this sort of cast of men of Hindu Sikh and Muslim who are her fans. And so I think it's from the perspective of the child, Lenny, I think she's called if I remember correctly, um, that we see the sort of playing out of partition. And it's incredibly moving, and it's just a a wonderful um, insight into a horrific uh, event that is so hard to capture because of the scale. Partition, obviously, is huge, the scale of it. Um, And I think Earth which was one of us, a trilogy actually of films where Deep Metal was looking into various issues, I suppose, um, is one that I think gives us one way in one story into partition. What do you think of it, Alex? Do
0: you know? I love it. Yes. Um, I mean, it was kind of the first one, well, I think maybe one of the first films in which I saw Amir Khan, who's just completely wonderful. who's a major star in India. Um, and he's amazing in it. He's usually amazing. Um, I think it's a fabulous nomination and actually the novel as well that it's based on, you say, perhaps he said was novel, which was, yeah, it was originally Ice Candyman. I think it was released in the UK, I think, as Cracking India. Um, I prefer the title Ice Candyman. I think that's rather more romantic, but it's um, it's an absolutely lovely film and I think you're absolutely right that something, I mean, it's something I even have written about with regards to partition is that often the scale of it's so hard to comprehend that actually you sort of do better with fiction sometimes because, it brings you that intimacy, which is so hard to understand about what happened and how awful it is. I mean, Hannah, I don't know about you, but I actually, I think we might make an exception for Susie and let her have both of these in the library because they're really both so fabulous.
2: I think so too, and it's almost like it's an offering for each of us. So Susie knows her court etiquette, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the club has become a court. Um, but yes, I think I think we'll take we'll take both into the library. They're great suggestions. Thank you. That's brilliant.
0: And Susie, we also have a a sort of can be a more difficult question, but um, hopefully a fun one, which is that, you know, we like to keep some sense of exclusivity at the History Film Club. And, you know, we want to uh, ban things that we don't like. So some people choose to nominate a particular film or TV show or Perhaps just something that you don't like, like uh, the aforementioned muddy hems on dresses or tight corsets. We've had all sorts. I wonder what really gets your goat on film.
1: It's really difficult because almost anything I can think of, I can think of an example of it in another film where I don't mind it. So I, (laughs) I think it does come down to the film a lot. I mean, sometimes I don't like when things are conflated or changed for no purpose in terms of the plot. I'm thinking of the fact that in the Tudor's, Henry VIII's sisters were boiled down into one sister who married the aging king of portugal um who then promptly died within 3 months and one of his sisters did marry an aging king well he was 52 is hardly aging but 52 <laughs> um and she was 18 and he did die within 3 months and we all sort of joke about you know him getting too excited really but it was the king of france and i i the only thing i can think is that perhaps they thought it would confuse the audience too much to have another king of france <laughs> thereafter quickly who was somebody else i don't know that's that sort of slightly irritates me but i think probably more it would be when we ascribe which basically what i'm going to say is describe every historical film ever so this is terrible but um <laughs> when we ascribe our values onto the people of the past to the point of eradicating their difference so particularly around faith like i think particularly around matters of religion and faith so important for so many people for so many centuries and yet, if we boil down their motives to actually be you know, economic or just driven by lust or something, that I find quite hard.
0: Yeah, You know, it's very hard to cover faith. This is something that comes up, actually, when you're writing historical stuff, is that often the explanation is that these people did have very strong faith. And it's, you know, it's considered to be very hard to communicate that to modern audiences, which I find interesting. And I think some... But it can be done brilliantly. I mean, actually, and I know I'm a broken record on this, but one film that is really brilliant on faith is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's all about that. The entire plot of that film is that Indy, who is very dismissive about um, religion at the beginning, actually has to learn to be humble and and look away from the face of God. It's a deeply religious film. Um, hmm, so you can a, do it. But, that's um, a great example. That's, that's the whole plot of that movie, is he has to learn. And then, of course, you know, it comes back in the third movie, he has to learn to be penitent and uh, all of these things. But, but for some reason, um, it, it producers I think, are very nervous about approaching Faith, even though I think actually audiences will, you know, will respond to it sometimes if done in a certain way.
2: I'm not sure. We've had a situation before, there, have we, Alex? We've struggled to find something to ban no. uh, from our <laughs> <We don't like laughs> Two things for that. the library, and nothing in the nothing in the bin. Um, I think this on our based on our conversation, nice. I would be tempted to ban those outdoor dance scenes from Elizabeth because I, <laughs> yeah. I love everything else about that film <laughs> apart from the jumping around on the grass outside the palace. I just, you know, so maybe I could ban for us. Uh, outdoor well, and, and dance also when scenes. when they're
1: doing that. When they're doing that, he he's and later in the film actually, and not that I'm complaining, seeing Joseph Fiennes in just a, a shift or whatever, but you know he's basically walking around undressed as far as the Tudors were concerned. <laughs> yeah, so, so but you know they're they're caring about the the buttons and the corsets. It's so easy to do.
0: I just remember seeing the film with a friend, and he rides up and sort of lifts a lady off a horse, and this friend just whispered to me done you and it did just feel like he was working his way through all those pretty girls you know um but anyway yeah wildly entertaining film um well I don't think we can ban all kind of yeah as you say all historical uses of sort of projecting our modern selves into history because that's kind of the basis of all historical film but I'll tell you what we'll we'll sling outdoor dances in the bin and then and then you you know you've got you've got two films in the library so that's that'll do (laughs) But the big question is: if I haven't come up with a big enough objection, am I going to be excluded myself from the club? This is what I want to know. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, Hannah. So. If you're if you're happy, I think we would love to welcome Susan I, to the I'm happy. Conference.
2: I think the courtly offerings to the library sealed the deal. That's so, done it, hasn't yeah. it? We're
0: easily <laughs> yeah. bribed. So, Susanna Lipscomb, welcome to the History Film Club. Um, It is traditional for us to buy our new members a a drink from the bar, which can make any historical drink or or a modern one if you prefer. Um, What is your choice? I'll go with the White Russian. Uh, Let's stick with the Big Lebowski here. Amazing. Amazing. That's that's (laughs) almost historical. Well, thank you very much, Susanna Lipscomb, for telling us all about the Tudor film, and thank you for listening.
1: You've been listening to The History Film Club with Alex von Tunzelman, Hannah Gregg, and Susie Lipscomb. It was edited and produced by Nat Tapley for Gloaming Productions.